are now recording. Me too. <laughs> That's my recording voice. <laughs> That's how you can tell. I just like how it sounds suspicious where we're like, I'm now recording, so be careful. <laughs> this is now on the record. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Vicari. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So Steph, what's new in your world? Hello. Uh, happy, happy Friday. Oh, I have something uh, that I'm excited or intrigued about. I don't know. Okay, I'm, I'm hyping it up, but <laughs> I'm realizing I'm also very um, skeptical of it. This is the best sales pitch I've ever heard. I'm so excited to hear what this is. <laughs> I am trying a new email client. It is the Newton email clients. And I just, I so want to love my inbox. I want to check on it. I want to help it grow. Okay, that's the opposite. I want to help get through all the emails that come through, but I just want to love it. I want it mm -hmm. to be a good space that I, I want to go to. And I, I'm so, I just hate email so much. And it always feels like this chore that I can, it's really hard for me to bring myself to do, but yet it's really important because then a lot of good things can come through email. So this is my rambly way of saying I'm trying uh, the Newton email client because I saw uh, on Twitter from Andrew Mason, who has very similar feelings that I do about email, where we are just not fans of it and we rarely check it and have declared email bankruptcy at several points in our life. And who's also uh, one of the co-hosts for Remote Ruby. But I saw on Twitter that Andrew was talking about the Newton email client and how it actually made him feel that he enjoyed writing and looking through his inbox. And I was like, yeah, that's that's the sales pitch I need. So I'm giving it a go. Uh, it's been only a couple of days. But one of the nice things I have noticed about it is it's very focused. And there's not much noise and actually feels uh, like very minimal design. Uh, where if you open up like a new email, so you're opening up a new draft, it's um, there's not much noise. Like you get to just focus, almost like you're writing like a little blog post or journal post or something. It it takes away a lot of the noise. While in Gmail, it's going to open up a small window in the right, but then you still have the rest of the noise that feels distracting. So I, I like that very intentional, like, hey, you're just doing one thing, just focus on this. And then also you can integrate other email accounts as well. So you can have one stop shopping versus Gmail, then you have to click around and sign in, sign out, or visit different email accounts. So we'll see. We'll see if it helps improve my my email life. But that's that's something new I'm trying. Very interesting. So you're fully on inbox zero life now. That's what I'm hearing. Uh, uh, hmm. <laughs> I don't want to lie to you. <laughs> we have a good friendship. I won't start lying now. <laughs> I appreciate that. So you're halfway to inbox zero? You're not even entertaining that idea, right? This is just, a, you want a better tool to do email? It, exactly. Inbox zero is not incredibly important to me, but I do want to make sure that I know that I have seen everything important and I know where to find things and then uh, making sure that I am responding to people in a timely manner. Those are more my goals. Inbox zero, if that supports it, then great, I'll work on it, but not necessarily like that has to be the, the goal that I reach. Gotcha. I'm not seeing Newton, but I'm intrigued, particularly... I. On mobile, I have the Gmail mobile app, and that has unified inbox, which I appreciate. But Gmail on the web does not, uh, and I find that odd. And I've never found uh, a mail app that I enjoy uh, because I want some of the features of Gmail. I want to do Gmail snoozing because that's I want that to be consistent and whatnot. And 
to be honest, that's the main way that I get to inbox zero. I just say future me will have more time. I actually tweeted recently. It was a screenshot from my Saturday inbox, which was just, I think it was 15 emails that I'd snoozed from the previous week into Saturday morning. Cause I'm like Saturday morning, me will have so much time and energy and coffee and it'll be great. And then it became Saturday morning and oh, what, what a view. <laughs> Yeah, your snoozing tip has been uh, life-changing for me because that's not something that I was using all that much. The two things are, one, scheduled send, so that way if I if I do have a sudden burst of energy and I want to write an email, but I want to make sure that person doesn't get notified until a decent time, uh, being able to schedule an email and snoozing is amazing. I think Newton and Gmail have pretty much a similar features. Like I was trying to do a comparison as like, is there something really snazzy that Newton does that Gmail doesn't already give me? But it looks like they all do about the same having those important features like snoozing and then also being able to schedule emails. So I think it's really just comes down to like a lot of the UI. And there may be some other stuff I'm missing since I'm new to it. But that's the main appeal for me right now is the focus and the look and feel of it. So then maybe I will find looking through my inbox a more zenful experience, I think is how I saw them advertise it. Well, I definitely look forward to hearing more uh, as you explore this space. Uh, I will say, uh, looping back to what you were just commenting on uh, around uh, deferred send, which is definitely something that I use, but you described one of the reasons that I use it. But uh, so the idea of wanting to be respectful of someone else, not, you know, send them an email on Sunday night because you happen to be working at that point, but you don't want to put that on their plate. I would say equal amounts. That's the reason I use scheduled send. And then the other reason that I use scheduled send is please, for the love of God, I do not want another email back in my inbox. So I will reply to something such that now I'm done with that, but I will schedule send it for the next morning. Because like tomorrow morning me can deal with whatever reply this generates. There's some adage, I don't know if it's an adage, but the idea that like every email that you send generates 1.1 emails in reply. So like emails just have this weird way of multiplying. And so if you send one out there, you're probably going to get something back. And so often, like if I'm trying to clear my inbox, I don't want to get another email in my inbox at that moment. So I will not actually send the reply. I will schedule it for a future time because I do not want to hear. I, I want no new inputs at this point. I'm trying to process them. So that's part of why I use deferred send. I had not thought of that, uh, that yeah, that if you schedule it for tomorrow, you've really gamified this inbox zero because you're like, yeah, if you send something, then you might get an email back. But you're like, if I wait till tomorrow to send it, then I'm less likely to have another email and then I've hit inbox zero and I'm set for the day. I like it. Seems helpful. Yeah. Inbox zero sounds like an altruistic thing, but it is not. It's a way to force myself to have to make decisions, which is something that I am, I want to get better at broadly. And that's part of like the role that I have now. A lot of what I'm interested in exploring is just getting better at making decisions, being more decisive, being more action-oriented, because I just have a tendency to make many, many spreadsheets and think about stuff for a while and take a long time to make a decision. But I don't get to do that, particularly now. But like broadly in life, that's probably not the right mode to be in. So Inbox Zero is another thing that sort of forces me to deal with things rather than just be like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, and keep looking at the same thing over and over. So just more thoughts about Inbox Zero, but now I'll stop talking about it. 
I do like that though. Like, and, and you're totally right. It, it is a, it can be a very helpful constraint. And I think that's sometimes why I fight it because then I haven't curated my inbox enough that then when I go to it, there's so many interesting things that then I feel a little bit overwhelmed where I'm like, oh, well, I want to read this and I want to look at that. And this seems interesting. And maybe I should be a part of this. It feels like one of those, like you could be a part of these 10 amazing things. Do you want to be a part of all of them? And given a person that it's hard for me to say no to or recognize that, no, I'm, I'm just going to not do anything with this. That is hard for me and would be a good skill for me to hone in on and practice and make quick decisions and be very realistic. Because I used to be subscribed to more newsletters. And then I finally had to stop subscribing to them because it had that same effect on me of that FOMO of like, I'm missing out on this great article or this great video. And, and I've become more honest with the fact that my Saturday morning self isn't going to want to read through a bunch of new newsletters and videos about coding that I'm going to want less screen time. Uh, so that that is a really good constraint and helpful skill to cultivate for sure. All right, I said I was done, but one more thing. <laughs> I feel like I've mentioned this in the past, but Feedbin is the thing that I use for RSS. I still believe in RSS as a technology, but everyone's moved to newsletters these days that go via email. Feedbin gives you a an email address that you can use to subscribe to newsletters, and then they do the job of converting that into an RSS feed. So for me, I take something that was now a push into my inbox and now I can pull whenever I want from that RSS feed and sort of on Saturday morning if I'm feeling like it with a cup of coffee I can enjoy some newsletter about all the new hot tips in Sveltland or whatever it is or not but it's not clogging up my inbox and with that I think I've actually done talking about inbox Uh, yeah, that's a nice separation. Uh, we could keep going. I have full faith in us that we could keep going about this. But I'll, I'll share a slightly different update. I've been implementing a suggestion that you provided uh, a couple weeks back where we were talking about RSpec selective test running and how some applications will speed up their tests by if you change one part of the code base, then perhaps you only need to test this chunk of test. You don't actually need to run the full test suite. And that is complicated and seems hard to get right and really requires understanding boundaries, but then also knowing Ruby, then how do you really identify? Do you really know where this method is being called and can identify all the tests that need to be run? I think we'd mentioned before, there's a really good article from Shopify where they have worked on this and created an open source project called Packwork. Um, So we can link to that article in the show notes. Uh, But more specifically, you suggested, well, what if you just change a test file? That seems very low stakes. And also has the benefit of creating a reward where if someone does see something that they can improve in a test, then that's a very quick feedback. Uh, let me just get this change. It's going to be fast on CI. I can merge it right away and also saves uh, time on CI. So I've been working on implementing that change. And it's one of those, the actual change is easy, like checking with Git to say, hey, what files have changed? Does it have an underscore spec.rb at the end of it? Great. Does it not? Okay, we've changed some application files. So let's run the full test suite. That part's easy. Getting it integrated into the build system has been more complicated just because this team has done a lot of work around trying to improve and speed up their tests. And there's a fair amount of complexity that's there. So then figuring out a way to stitch my change into all the different build processes that take place, that has proven to be more difficult. But it's also been insightful just because it has now helped me really understand and kind of forced me to learn, okay, what are all the different steps? What's important for each one? Where can I cut off the rest of the the running of the test and instead just focus on running these tests? 
So in some ways, it's been uh, challenging, but then on the positive side, it's been like, okay, well, this this has taught me a lot about the existing system. So at this moment, it's still a work in progress. I'll have more updates in the future. I am excited to see the rewards. Like I've got it to the point where I just have a proof of concept uh, where I've gotten pushed up, but it's sort of like a, it's not production ready, but it's at least like I just wanted the feedback that I'm in the right spot and that we're running just the right test. And so far, it does seem like it's going to be a nice win, even if it's maybe not used by everybody, because it's probably rare that someone is altering just a spec file. But for people who are looking specifically to improve the CI build time and working on tests, it will be very helpful to them. So yeah, I'm sure I'll have some more updates in the future. Um, What's going on in your world? Well, yeah, definitely look forward to hearing more about that. Uh, However we can improve CI speed, I'm, I'm super interested in that as a topic. Hey friends, let's take a quick break to hear from today's sponsor, New Relic. All right, so you've probably experienced this before where you're just starting to fall asleep and it's a calm, code-free, peaceful sleep and then you're jolted awake by an emergency page. It's your night on call and something is wrong. But I have some good news because you have New Relic, which means you can quickly run down the incident checklist and find that problem. So let's see, our real user monitoring metrics look good, and that's where New Relic measures the speed and performance of your end users as they navigate the site, but it looks like there's an error in application performance monitoring. If we click on the error, we can find the deployment marker where it all began, roll back the change, and ooh, problem is solved. We can go back to bed, back to sleep, and back to happy. That's the power of combining 16 different monitoring products into one platform. You can pinpoint issues down to the line of code so you know exactly why the problem happened and can resolve it quickly. That's why more than 14,000 other companies, including GitHub and Epic Games, use New Relic to improve their software. So you know that next late night call is just waiting to happen. So get New Relic before it does. And you can get access to the whole New Relic platform and 100 gigabytes of data free forever. No credit card required. Sign up at newrelic.com slash bikeshed. That's newrelic, N-E-W-R-E-L-I-C dot com slash bikeshed. Newrelic.com slash bikeshed. Well, similar to your uh, email adventures, I continue on my search for the perfect to-do list. Uh, It's not going great, if we're being honest. (laughs) To be clear, because I've mentioned this on a few different episodes, I'm not spending much time on this at all. Some, but not much. And so it's not really moving. But there are two interesting things. I took a look at TickTick, which was one that I mentioned in the past, a tool for this. It seems good. It seems sort of like an intersection between things, which is what I'm currently using, Todoist, which I've used in the past, and some other tools. So I think I'll probably explore that a little more. seems like a good option. Um, decidedly, the most interesting thing is a tool called Sunsama, uh, which is different in some interesting ways, but uh, very interesting. So one thing to note about it is it's $20 a month, which is a lot of money for one of these tools, because most of them are like, we're $20 forever, and then it's free. And it's a surprisingly low cost sort of space. And so they're definitely positioning themselves as a more costly entry. I would be fine with paying $20 a month for a tool if it really is like, nope, cool, I feel great. I'm more productive. I'm you know happier when I'm not working, etc. Um, but what's interesting is they seem to do a Let's reach out to all the places that tasks can live for you. So there's your inbox for email. There's your Trello board that you've got. There's GitHub issues. There's Slack. There's all these different sources of potential tasks. And they do a really good job of integrating with those other tools and then allowing you to sort of pull that list into Sunsama and then make 
each day you have a list and it, those items can be like, this is a reference to a Trello card on that board. This is a reference to a Slack conversation over there. So I'm super intrigued by it. It's also got a very intentional plan your day mode, which I like because that's one of the things that I'm really looking for is at the end of the day, I want to sort of clean everything up, make sense of all of the open items and then reprioritize and set up for the next morning so that I can just hit the ground running. That said, I tried it and it just didn't quite click. And I think it's gonna it's one of those that would like take some effort to understand how to use it. So I'm not sure that I'm gonna get there. But it is super interesting because like that idea of our work lives in all of these different tools these days feels very true. And so something that is trying to sort of act as a hub between them to sort of integrate them is, is very interesting to me. Again, though, I haven't really gotten anywhere on this. I'm kind of just reading blog posts as it were. So I'll report back if that changes, but the search continues for the right to do app. Yeah, that seems interesting. I I don't know. I'm I'm feeling hesitant towards it. Uh, I'm one of those individuals. You're right. There's so many tools, and the fact that they integrate with a lot of them seems really nice. I'm at the point where I just grab links to stuff, and I'm like, hey, if this is my priority, like I grab a link to a Trello ticket, and then I just copy that into my to do. I guess I like I, that bit of work over the having to integrate with a bunch of different platforms. Because then it, once you get used to it integrating, if I don't know, I'm just rambling that I, I wish you the best on this journey. I'm excited <laughs> to hear more. <laughs> Thank you. I will certainly report back. But yeah, n- nothing pointed to share at this point. Um, but I do have something pointed to share on the hiring front, which is that we have hired some folks. Um, so we are. Hooray. Yay. Uh, this is, you know, been a fun saga co- across a couple of different episodes. And in my mind, it feels like this much longer, more drawn out thing. But it's actually, I think come together relatively quickly, all things considering. Um, We've got someone who's starting in a little over a week's time and then someone else who's starting in, uh, I think, like two or three weeks after that. So that'll be great. We'll have, uh, hopefully we can transition into onboarding, which is a different uh, whole approach, but hiring as a distinct activity can sort of scale back significantly. Um, As we discussed last week, I'm always, I want to be in the always be hiring mindset, but in the more passive mode of having conversations with folks, staying connected. And if a great candidate comes along and it's the right time, then bring them on the team, but not not actually actively reaching out and all that sort of stuff, which will be great because turns out that takes a lot of time and also a lot of energy for me. Like having those first conversations, going into it very intentionally, trying to communicate about something. And there's, you know, there's a tone of salesmanship to it that is not my natural resting state. So I come away from each conversation being like, that was fun, but also I'm drained now. Why am I so drained? Uh, So not having that be a thing that is filling up my calendar is great. And also super excited with the folks that will be joining the team and to be able to now grow our little team and sort of define the culture and the shape of the group that we will be uh, collectively. I'm excited for that work uh, and what we can build together. So yeah, it's an exciting time. That's awesome. Congratulations. Because yeah, everything you're saying, it, it sounds like it's it's just been a lot of work. So that's very exciting. There's someone that I was chatting with earlier today where they were talking about the value and the importance of understanding like what your natural skills are and the things that bring you energy. And so you're mentioning like there's certain activities you enjoy them, but they're also draining because perhaps they are on the outer boundary of what you might define as like your own natural skill or the things that get you really excited. And I found that all very interesting. It's had me thinking about that today about where are the natural areas that I find that I get energy that are easier for me and then making sure that I'm trying to prioritize my day so that I am more focused on the activities that just align with who I am and also that I'm engaged with and then also looking for ways to stretch. But 
uh, they made the the point that if you are always in a space where you are not using your natural talents and you're always having to stretch, then that can be what leads to burnout versus if you are in that that sweet spot, that zone of where you are using your natural skills, but then also um, stretching a bit. And I think there's some assessments and things like that that will help you then determine like, what are my natural skills? And what do I like to do with my time? I just like that style of thinking and recognizing, like you said, like, hey, like I did a thing, it was fun, but I'm drained. So now I know that this is something that requires more effort for me. Like hiring, that's one for me. I I really like interviewing. I like talking with people, but I am so nervous for them because I know interviews suck. (laughs) that I just, I have so much empathy for them where I'm like, oh, this is, I, this is going to be a hard day. We're going to make it as pleasant and positive as possible. But I just, I know this is a hard day. And and so I feel like I'm in it with them. And so afterwards, I feel that same sort of relief of like, ooh, okay, interview day's over. I don't know that I quite achieved the same level that you do, but in no way am I surprised that that is your experience of hiring. And just to name it, you're a wonderful human being that feels for the people on the other side of the hiring table. Like, oh my God, this is this must be so stressful for you. It's so kind of you to be in that space with folks. But it, coming back to what you were saying a moment ago, that idea of like understanding where your strengths are and where there are areas that you're not quite as strong. And then I think critically, the question of like, which are the ones where I want to just kind of say no to? I'm like, that's fine. This is not going to be a competency of mine. And I'm going to just avoid that or find other people to work with that balance that out. And so like for me, sales is a thing that like, I I don't think that's ever going to be my bag. I don't think I'm ever going to move in that direction. And that's totally fine. Whereas decisiveness, which I was describing is like, I think that's a thing I could get better at. That is one that I don't want to sleep on that. I don't want to say like, that'll be fine. I'll just have other people make the decision. No, like I need to get better at making decisions making decisions with less information or more rapidly, having a bias towards action, all of those things I think will be deeply beneficial. So I'm trying to really lean into that. Whereas, yeah, again, the sales stuff, I'm like, yeah, and there's plenty of examples of this otherwise. But I've also been coding a bit more this week, which has been lovely because the hiring stuff is sort of ramped down and that has freed me up uh, amongst some other stuff that's been going on. And, you know, I like to code, it turns out. It's fun. I just clack about on my cherry brown uh, keys and it's great. Do you remember when we first got introduced to mechanical keyboards and we had co-ownership of one of the keyboards and we literally had days of where it was like your turn to use the keyboard and then it was my turn to use the keyboard. I think, how long did we keep that up before we were finally like, we should just buy our own keyboards? It was a while because we were working with a colleague who was trying out a Kinesis, I want to say. So one of the like split kind of little bowl of keys but yeah we had shared custody over a keyboard and it was fantastic i remember that very fondly i the days that it was my keyboard i would go to the office and be like oh today's my day at the keyboard this is great this is going to be such a <laughs> wonderful day <laughs> and now i'm just spoiled it went on for a while though and this was a very solid we're like we both obviously enjoy this keyboard why don't we just buy one of this keyboard which was to- we totally could have done that and yet, for some reason, both of us were like, no, but what if I got to think about this again, decisiveness, it would come back to this topic of, well, I had to really think about it. And then somebody got the 92 key tester or whatever it was in the office. And so I just went over and poked every one of those for a while. Exactly. It was option overload where we're like, well, okay, we're going to buy one. And then you open it up and search and you're like, oh, you want options. We have options. Do you know about the blues and the browns and the colors and these different options? Like, I don't know any of this language that you're talking about. I just want to clackety clack. So yeah, it took time. We had to do our research. And then I ended up on basic browns. So here we are. 
Let's see, popping back up the stack a couple levels, uh, hiring, that went on for a while. Now it is less going on, although to be clear, like I said, always be hiring. So if anyone out there in the world is hearing what I'm talking about with Sagewell or seeing any of the stuff that I'm putting on Twitter, which isn't much, I occasionally just post screenshots of my commit messages, which recently included better snakes as a commit message. Uh, Having to dig into that or not, but we were just doing some snake case to camel case sort of conversion. But the commit message was better snake, so here we are. Anyway, if any of that sounds interesting, please do reach out. Uh, but I'm excited to transition back to you know focusing more on the work. On that note, actually, one of the, I'm going to call it interesting things that is happening right now organizationally is we are working with an external security firm to help with some, they, they helped us out with a penetration test when we needed that. And then they have stayed on sort of on retainer and are helping with various different configurations taking our AWS S3 buckets and making sure those are nice and secure and all that kind of stuff. But we've recently started to focus more on organizational security, uh, specifically a bowl of acronyms. Uh, we've got SSO for single sign-on, MDM for something device management. I don't know what that first M is. I probably should learn it. But it's fine. That's why I've, I've got help on this. Is they, I think they know what the acronym stands for. Um, but so we're working on each of those. And on the one hand, they're probably going to be kind of annoying. Like having to go through the single sign-on, it's a whole thing. And it's harder to sign into stuff sometimes. I mean, ideally, it's actually easier. But in my experience, it adds some friction at some points. And then MDM means that there's now some profile manager on the computer. So I can say, like, every computer must have full disk encryption or else you can't use it. And we need a passcode and it must be this long and those sort of things. So it's organizational controls that I think are good for us having a robust security sort of setup throughout the organization. But yeah, they are the sort of things that I think historically I probably would have, as someone working in an organization, had them been like, ah, do we have to? Do we need these things? Couldn't I just do whatever? But now there's something about it that I really like. I'm trying to like name it in my head, but I'm kind of like, I don't know, this feels like sort of growing up as an organization. And there's a weird corollary that I've been thinking about with the Rails app that we've been building, intimately familiar with just everything that's going into it. And I know the vast majority of the lines of code, I haven't written them all, but I've had an eye on all of the different features that we're building. And it, it's still, it's hard to get out of that headspace where it feels like a bunch of pieces. It doesn't feel like a whole to me, even though it definitely is. But it's, you know, when does a bunch of boards that you nail together become a boat to make a really weird analogy? Because that's what I do. <laughs> it's a hobby of mine. But like, when does that transition happen? At some point, certainly. But that's harder for me to see on the code side. And organizationally, somehow, like getting these things in place feels like the organization sort of an inflection point for us, a grow, a growth point, uh, which is, I'm weirdly excited about it, even though they're probably going to mean a ton of annoying nuisance work for me because I'm the person in charge of making sure it all gets rolled out. And anytime anyone locks themselves out of an account, I have to help with that. And so it's probably just putting a bunch of annoying work on my plate. And yet, I'm, I don't know, I'm kind of excited about it. I feel like that shows our roots in terms of how we approach projects that we work on, where you mentioned the, do we need this? Do we need this yet? Because I feel that we're constantly as developers and consultants just sort of trying to advise on the more simplified, like, do we need this? This is the right thing to spend the money on. How do we know? What are the metrics? What's the success look like? And those questions. So that I feel like the way you just phrased all of that just really shows that sort of mentality that you grew up with in terms of checking in. And yeah, it's cool. It seems like, like you said, you're at a growth point where then it's like, yes, we, we are at this point that I've asked myself all those questions and and we're here this feels like the right next step i like the way you described it as that you grew up with (laughs) my formative growing years at thoughtbot scout apm is an application performance monitoring tool that's designed to help developers find and fix performance issues quickly 
With an intuitive user interface, Scout will tie bottlenecks to source code so you can quickly pinpoint and resolve performance abnormalities like N plus one queries, slow database queries, and memory bloat. Scout also recently implemented external service monitoring, adding even more granularity when it comes to HTTP requests and API calls. So give Scout a try today with a free 14-day trial and experience firsthand why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend. And as an added bonus for Bike Shed listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. To learn more, visit scoutapm.com forward slash bike shed. That's scoutapm.com forward slash bike shed. Well, switching gears just a bit, uh, we have a listener question for today, and this one comes from Stephanie. So not me, another Stephanie in the world. Hello, other Stephanie out there in the world. And they wrote in, hey, Steph and Chris, fellow software consultant here, and I'm wondering if you'd consider talking about how to craft a project estimate for a client on the pod. It's such an important aspect of consulting. Amen. I added the amen. And I feel like I'm very much impacted as a project team member when the estimate isn't accurate double amen. (laughs) So true. (laughs) Would appreciate any and all thoughts, especially since it might be part of my job in the future. Thanks. I just realized I put us in consultant church by adding all those amens, but here we are. (laughs) I'm glad you clarified that they were additions by you and not part of the original question coming in. Sure. I don't want to speak on behalf of Stephanie. So... I have some thoughts on uh, the matter. I think there's a couple of different ways that we can talk about this particular question, because I think there are different formats as to when you're estimating and who you're providing the estimate for. But I'm going to pause because I'd love to see what you think. How do you go about approaching crafting an estimate? Sure. I'm happy to share some thoughts. And for a bit of context, this question came into us, uh, frankly, many months ago. But I did send an initial reply to Stephanie because I know that sometimes we take a little bit of time to get back to folks. So if ever you do send in a question, know that uh, one of us will probably respond via email earlier and then eventually we'll make it on the show. And again, just to say we do so appreciate when folks send in these questions. It's an interesting just way to shape the conversation and way to uh, get topics that you're more interested in into the fold here. Uh, but so the the two main ideas that I shared in my initial reply were, first, is an estimate really necessary? I think that's a critical question because an estimate sort of implies that this thing is knowable. And as many of us, probably all of us have found out at some point in our lives as software developers, it's really hard to do software estimation, like wildly difficult. Uh, and not just a thing that like, well, eventually you get better at it, which you do, but there's a certain, cat- there's just some chaos, there's some noise in this work that we do that makes it so, so difficult to get it right. So pretty much always I will ask like, do we need to estimate here? What if instead we were to flip the whole question on its head and say, let's set a deadline, let's say two months from now, that's our deadline. And let's ruthlessly reprioritize every single week to make sure that we're building something that's meaningful and we're getting there. And obviously we have to have some general idea of what we're doing. Like is two months a meaningful amount of time to build a rocket to go to Mars? Probably not. But is it enough time to build an app that can allow users to sign in and manage, you know, a simple list of items? Yeah, we can definitely do that. And we can probably add a bunch more features. The other thing that I think is worth highlighting is there's a bunch of stuff that is sort of table stakes and very easy to do, but I would, whenever doing estimation, emphasize unknowns. So where are the external integrations with other systems? Where are the dependencies that rely on other folks to provide some inputs into this process that we can't be certain where they'll be? In my experience, the places where estimates go awry are often these little intersection points that you're like, well, this will probably take a day, maybe two. And it turns out, actually, this can somehow balloon into a month. 
Like that doesn't see that's not a thing that feels comfortable saying in an estimation process, but it is definitely real. I've seen it happen so many times. And so it's those unknowns. It's those little bits that um, I would emphasize as part of the process if you do need to do an estimate and say like, all right, here's the boring stuff. I think we can do that pretty easily. But this part, I don't know, could be a week, could be three months and frame it in that way that there is this ambiguity there because if someone's asking you for an estimate and they're looking for like it is seven days and two hours exactly it's like well that's not realistic that's not how this thing works unfortunately wish it did but sort of pushing back and changing the conversation is a thing that i've found valuable Um, i think there's some other really interesting stuff in here around the team dynamics that stephanie's talking about um, but I want to I want to send this over to other Stephanie uh, to see your thoughts, because I'm super interested to hear what you have to say as well. Oh, I, I like how you hinted at the team dynamics. Yeah, that could be a, a fun one to circle back to. So I love how you called out um, highlighting the unknowns. There's a couple of ways that this comes to mind for me. So there's the idea of like the weekly or the the biweekly estimates that we make as developers and designers. So let's say we as team are getting together to focus on a chunk of work and decide what we can and can't get through. And that feels one of those more you get to practice it more frequently. You get to ask a bunch of questions and that feels like a good rehearsal and exercise of how to go through estimates. And I know you and I have pretty similar strong feelings around how those estimates are then treated by the company. They should really just be used for the team to talk through the complexities in the work to be done versus used to communicate outwardly as to like, this is when it's definitely going to ship. So there's that more immediate practice of providing estimates. And then there's the idea for more of a consultancy or a company and someone is coming to you. So ThoughtBot being a great example of then how do we work with teams that are looking to come to us and gain an estimate for getting a certain feature implemented. So actually, I I went to the source on this one. I went to Josh Clayton, who does a lot of the conversations for the Boost team when it comes to talking with clients and about the potential work that they would like to be done. And mostly our work is often teams will hire us. They have specific goals in mind, but they're really looking to hire ongoing development and services. So they really want to add to their existing staff. And then it's going to be an ongoing relationship versus a, hey, we need you to quote us for like how long it's going to take to implement this particular feature. And on that note, we don't do fixed bid work. So we don't say it's X dollars for specific features. But on the realistic side, customers are often capped by a budget. And so that estimate is very important to them because it could be a difference between it's a go versus a no-go. So if you have larger companies that are like, yep, we want to engage with ThoughtBot, we really just want additional development power and design services, that's great. For those that are smaller, it could be an individual product owner, and they need to say, like, I really want this feature, but I only have this much money. And frankly, if I can't ship it by this time, I'm not going to do it because it's not worth the investment to my company. And in those cases, those are the ones that we're going to spend more time with them to talk about what does the fallback plan look like and what's our opportunity for simplifying the features. And Josh in particular referenced this as a systems thinking. So he will go through the idea of drawing out the set of steps, understanding the complexity of the different screens. So what are the validations? What are the external dependencies? What is owned by us and what isn't? What is the likelihood that we're going to get permission to simplify or remove complexity? And even then, when we start to provide some estimates, it's going to be in weeks. Uh, it's not in hours. It's not in days. It's going to be in a slightly larger time frame. And then we're also going to spend more time in the discovery phase to say, okay, well, 
we know you need to fix this particular issue or you need to integrate with this particular service. So we're going to need to ask a lot more questions about your code base. What problems have you already run into? Have you tried to do this before? Do we have experience doing this? Is this something that we can lean on and ask someone in the team and say, how, how long do you think it would take for us to work on this? And that's knowledge that isn't privy to everybody. It depends on where you're at in your career as to like, oh, yeah, I've done this like five times before, and I know exactly how this stuff can fall apart. I know where the complexity lies. So I think that's why estimation is so difficult is just because it does often pull from that existing experience. And so if you don't have that experience for a particular set of work, of course, it's going to be hard to estimate because you just don't know. So that was a very kind of broad scope of... As day-to-day developer and designers, I feel like we're constantly getting practice in estimating and communicating the progress of our work. And then on the larger scope of if you are a consultant who's then looking to give estimates to clients, then understanding what are their needs. Can you sell them just ongoing development services? Or if they are a smaller team or very focused, then what legwork can you do ahead of time to de-risk the project? And then understand how much control you're going to have to be able to simplify as you learn more as you go. Because you're going to. You're going to uncover some things and you're going to learn some things. And what's that collaboration going to look like? I do have one more concrete example that I can provide around some of the the smaller projects that we take on. So when we are helping someone that's, uh, say, getting a new product out to market, then we do have a more deliberate three, four phase approach where we first focus on discovery and ideation and validation. And then we move on to iteration and then launching. And I really like how you said about providing a deadline because then it helps you scope aggressively as to like, what is the minimum thing that we can get out into the world that will be valuable? And then there's usually some post-launch support as well. But that's often how we will structure those smaller, more specific engagements. I think one of the critical things that you highlighted in there is that ThoughtBot doesn't do fixed bid work. So we're going to do these 20 features and it's going to take four months. ThoughtBot does not do that. And frankly, that's sort of a a privilege to be able to take that position and say like, no, 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 we're not going to work that way. But it is, I think it's a trade-off. It's not just something that ThoughtBot does to be like, listen, that doesn't sound fun. So I'm not going to do that. It's a trade-off. It comes not doing that comes in concert with saying, but weekly, we're going to talk about the work that we have done and the work that remains and constantly, ruthlessly reprioritize, re-decide what we're doing. And it's that engagement. The idea that like you can have a body of work, look at it and say like, yeah, that'll take about six months and then go away for six months and then come back with the finished software. Like that, Our strong belief is that that's not the way good software gets built. But instead, it's a very engaged team where the product owner and the development team are in constant communication about each of the features that are being developed. And then again, sort of um, ideally on a weekly cadence, coming up for air and saying like, how are we doing? Are we moving in the right direction? Are we getting towards the goals? If not, do we need to simplify? Do we need to change things? And similarly, as I mentioned, deadlines, I feel like deadlines is probably a word that many people think of as very bad because deadlines often come with also a fixed scope. But that can't happen. That's two constraints and you you can't have them fighting that way. But a deadline can be super useful as a way to say, like, we're going to put something out there in the future and say we're heading towards that moment. And let's, again, cut scope. Let's change what we're building, et cetera. But critically not say we got a deadline and a fixed scope. We're going to do that. And so it's, again, just ways to sort of gently shift the conversation around and say, what if we were to look at this from a different angle? Because just having a pile of work and saying that'll take six months. I've never seen that play out. 
Yeah, to me, deadline is a bad word when the deadline is set by a team that's not doing the work. So if you have leadership or if you have someone else that is setting this deadline and then just passing that down to someone else to then fulfill, regardless of the feedback or how things are going, then yeah, then it it can be a, a nasty thing. Which I think is a little bit of in that question that you picked up on that you highlighted where there could be some interesting team dynamics that Stephanie called out highlighting that I'm very much impacted as a project team member when the estimate isn't accurate. And I'm making some assumptions here because I, I don't actually know the exact situation that Stephanie is experiencing. But it sounds like someone else externally is setting these team estimates. And so then you're handed this deadline and then stuff goes wrong, but you're still pressured to meet this deadline. And I've certainly been part of projects that are like that. And then that is one of the number one things that then often comes up in a retro where like we don't have control over these deadlines or we don't know why these deadlines are being set. And then people are working extra hours and working nights and weekends to then meet this arbitrary deadline that none of us signed up for. And that's just not fair to treat deadlines in that way. So full-heartedly agree deadlines are can be a very positive thing, but they need to be set by the people doing the work. And then there has to be discussions and updates about how is this going? Do we have control to simplify this? We thought we could do this with this particular external provider. It turns out that that's a nightmare. Is there another provider we can go with? Can we ship this incrementally? Like some features you can't. It may have to go out wholesale, but Is there a small chunk of this that we can deliver that is then a success that leadership and others can brag about? And then we can keep working on the rest of it. So it's always identifying what are the smallest wins and how do we get there and getting buy-in from the team. Going back to something that you said earlier around, it is a privilege where, so as ThoughtBot, we don't do fixed bid work. And that is a nice thing for us to be able to focus on. But for people who do need to do fixed bid work and are relying on that, I think that often requires more legwork. And maybe that becomes part of your estimate. I'm just making up how I might approach this if I were trying to do fixed bid work. But there's a discovery phase that's very important. So maybe the first part of your estimate is I need to really understand the feature and see the different screens and know uh, what materials we do or don't have. What does the code base look like? Do I feel like this is a code base that I can work quickly in? Is it going to be hindersome for me? But answering a lot of those questions to then help me paint a picture of like, okay, this is a feature that I've implemented before. So I feel pretty confident that I could do this in in a month. And then also communicating that this is my estimate, but just know it's an estimate. And I will continue to update you each day as to how things are going or each week as to how things are going and things may adjust. And we can always talk about ways about simplifying this. But I think that's how I would go about it is it, frankly, it's, it's going to require more legwork for me to feel more confident as to then telling someone as to how long I think the work will take. I think that's a nice broad scope of the different type of estimate work to uh, be done with the general idea of if you can avoid estimates and go for more frequent updates, then that's wonderful. But then if you are forced into a corner where you need to provide an update, then just do as much research and honesty as possible, and then still include the frequent updates. Yeah, that um, I think summarizes it quite well. As a side note, it's been a lot of fun to feel like I'm referring to myself as a third person as Stephanie is working through this problem. So that's been novel. But yeah, thank you, Stephanie, for the great question. I I hope that was helpful. On that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Mandy Moore. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes, as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me on Twitter at S. And I'm at Chris Toomey. 
or you can reach us at host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.